Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today we have not just one, but two special guests. So we have uh, Rachel Cass and Dr. Helen Adani. Welcome to Arash's World. Hi. Thank you so much. Wonderful. So we, we're going to talk about um, uh, your book in a few moments, but I'd like to start off as I usually do here for you to introduce yourself in any way you see fit. Yeah, it might be something unusual or usual, whatever you like. And uh, let's start with you, Rachel. Could you please just briefly introduce yourself? Oh, gosh. Um, hi, my name is Rachel. I am an educator as well as an expert in child development. Um, I love to talk about children and their development. Um, and I also want to be honest that I am not the perfect parent and that I am learning all the time from the children that I work with and also my children that I'm raising. So let me enter this with some, you know, don't think I'm perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. And what about you, uh, Helen? Yeah, hi, um, I'm Helen Hadani, and similar to Rachel, I'm also um, a child development expert. I have a little bit different background. I'm a researcher as well. I currently am a fellow at the Brookings Institution, so study education policy and um, the power of playful learning, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. I'm also a parent to two teenage daughters, so that is very high on my mind these days. My older daughter, Ruby, is about to graduate from high school in a few days, so so um, as Rachel said, parenting is, is high on my mind and, um, and really part of my world. But we're so excited to be here with you today to, to share some of um, what we write about in our book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to that book. But um, I, I think it's great that you both are parents because I've, I've gotten suggestions and tips from people who are not parents. And although I appreciate it and it's, it's like theoretical learning, I think it's also the practical part that's really important, that experience level. And I, I really appreciate that you are parents. So it's it's kind of that, that connection too. But we're gonna talk about your book, which is called The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative and Well-Balanced Kids. As a parent, I would say, yes, please. <laughs> so how do we do it? What do we do? What is your book about? Let's Let's dive into it. Um, I can just go first and sure. then Helen can back me up. I think Helen and I, we worked together at the Bay Area Discovery Museum where Helen was leading the Center for um, Child, oh. Center for Childhood Creativity. That's right. The, thank you, Helen. The Center for Childhood Creativity. And I was the director of the Bay Area Discovery Museum School. It was a school within the museum setting. And um, Helen and I quickly came to realize when we were working with parents and children and, and uh, families that would come through the museum that we needed to help parents really think about the development of children. That when they understood how children developed, particularly emotional intelligence and sort of emotional and social, um, social awareness, that they would really understand a lot more of what they were seeing. They could identify the behaviors in relation to development and maybe not take it personally or think that there was something about their child or their parenting that could be the cause of a, of a particular behavior. So we were quite eager to work together to write this book. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I noted that there was this overlap at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, and I was wondering, maybe a lot of ideas started off uh, cooking there and bubbling there, and you you kind of put your heads together. So that was it. So I, my my hunch was correct, right? That's where how it started to develop the this idea for the book. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I'll, I'll talk. Um, yeah, Rachel gave a good backstory of how we originally met, but then. Um, I think what, what we quickly bonded over and became really quick and close um, colleagues and friends was sort of our passion for and our love for developmental research and how we could use some of those findings, you know, us knowing about um, the, current, the current research and the current literature and applying those, in this case, in, in a classroom and museum setting. And seeing, and, and Rachel seeing firsthand the changes of the behaviors of the children and how they talk to one another and how they interacted with one another. So we thought, wow, we're, we're onto something here. Um, you know, again, using our knowledge and background in early childhood development and education, and in this case, more specifically around social and emotional learning and emotional intelligence, and having sort of, you know, supporting children and scaffolding children and parents in really um, we call it like thinking about their thinking, thinking about what's going on inside their heads, right? Which we kind of often just don't think about or dismiss, right? Because it's not something that you can see easily, right? Um, but it's so important for children to have these skills very early on because it sets the foundation for, you know, not only their academic learning, but just how they're going to be successful and thrive in this very, you know, fast paced and social world. Yes, and so neuroscience for me has been an eye opener too, of like understanding because their their the brain is working differently. And I, I had a psychoanalyst Erica Commissar who talked about that the the forgetfulness is part of the brain growing. It's not uh, meant as as a way of attacking us or ignoring us as parents, but that we have to keep that uh, in perspective. And I think that is very important. And you mentioned here perspective taking of putting yourself into the shoes of your children and seeing and understanding the world through their eyes, not necessarily how we see it, but how they would see it and how they would interpret the world, which is very important. Something that a skill that many of us um, don't have or are not aware of, right? And it's really that, that change of perspective, I think it's hugely important. Yes, it's definitely always developing, which is important. And yeah. even when you talk about forgetfulness, if we just look at it developmentally, we could talk about memory mm -hmm. and how children develop memory, which is super interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's always that spin where you can say, what is, what is my child doing? What's happening here? And what is developmental? <laughs> and, and that's a real... Um, it's, it's always a place to begin thinking about mm -hmm. you know, when, you're, when you're observing what your child is doing. And you're also questioning yourself about your parenting skills and your parenting style. Yeah. And, and it's, it's something that it's trial by error too. And you keep updating and changing uh, different strategies. And ev every child is unique. I mean, that's something we have to keep in mind with all these theories as well that, that we have. But still, we have to take that individuality also into account, of course. Yeah, and that's, I think in the book, what we try and stay away from is like mentioning like X should happen at this age, <laughs> right? We definitely talk about different stages of development, right? Because yeah. there's definitely a progression that children go through or most children go through. But so we say, you know, in toddlerhood or in the preschool ages. So we try and, you know, stay away from specific ages while still giving some guidance to 
you know, in the early preschool years, your child will start to understand that they're, you know, that our behaviors are driven by our beliefs and our thoughts and our intentions. And there's that important link there, you know, and that's an important development. So, yeah, I think you're right that one thing, um, you know, that I think all parents need to keep in mind is that you're, every child is an individual and they're going to develop differently. And, and one thing is it's part of human nature that I think we do, um, especially as parents, is we compare, right? Like it's really hard not to compare your kid to the other kids in the, their class or their play group or whatever, right? And, and it's a really hard thing not to do, but I think what we're trying to talk about in our, in our book is really, yes, taking, using your perspective taking skills that are always developing, even as an adult, and thinking about how is your child perceiving the world? Because that could help explain why they are not doing, doing or not doing, you know, what you want them um, to do. And so emotional intelligence is something that uh, many parents haven't focused on. It's, it's like with the drive for intelligence, and that seems to be important. And in my view, it's overrated. I mean, you can be intelligent in different ways. And now research is showing that, but I've always seen like, what are the unique talents of your child that you can develop? And it might be intelligence or it might be other things. And I think we really need more emotional intelligence than just the, the academic way of understanding intelligence. Uh, would you agree with that? I mean, that's the title of your book. I would say we probably do agree with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, no matter whether it's academic intelligence or whatever mm -hmm. style that your child learns, you're going to need to know how to take turns. Mm -hmm. You're going to need to know how to collaborate with others. You're going to need to know how to participate in a conversation. You're going to need some uh, self-control and impulse control, some focus and some working memory. <laughs> so, you know, all of those things really encompass what we need for emotional intelligence. And when, when we think about it, those are the intelligences that we're using all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In every interaction with another person and every interaction with ourselves. You know, when we're thinking about our thinking and we're thinking about what we're doing, we're, we're using that emotional intelligence too. And, and I was quite fascinated by the link between wisdom and empathy and how empathy is so important. And uh, I, I've talked to highly intelligent people who do not have that. And it's, it's an interesting conversation, but that's about it because you can't really develop a relationship without empathy, without that uh, level of emotional intelligence. And that relationship, whether it's a romantic one, whether it's uh, uh, with friends, whether it's at work as a, as a boss, as a leader, I think it's hugely important, especially in today's society. Yeah, and I mean, I think um, going back to, you know, something Rachel said about, you know, these skills about being able to take turns and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that one thing that happened during COVID for a lot of families and a lot of parents when kids, you know, had to were sent home from school and had to learn online, parents realized, okay, yes, it's it, the academic skills are important, but it's like these social emotional skills that you cannot do, you know, it's really hard to do over Zoom, right? And that now when, you know, and then, you know, a couple of years later, when children are going back to school, I think a lot of parents realize, hey, actually, what we really need to work on is 
my kid being able to interact with other kids successfully and comfortably, right? And that's something I think is sort of highlighted or spotlighted that these are really important skills, these executive function skills. Sometimes we call them learning to learn skills, you know, social emotional skills. Again, they're the ones that you know, you might not think of because they're not the ones that show up on the on the report card, right? Usually in most schools, right? And so, but at the same time, they can be more difficult and sometimes in many cases more challenging for parents to support their children to develop these skills, right? Because there's not like, as far as I know, there's no Khan Academy for, right? For these, these types of skills. Um, and so it's, yeah, so that's why we really, you know, we wanted to write this book to, you know, share, you know, what we know, a lot of important developmental research that doesn't get out there in the world. It's just sort of stuck in the, in academia. Um, and, but talk about it in a way that's really accessible and really relatable and really usable. And that's, and that's why we talk about the, or we develop the mind framework. And that's what we talk about in the second half of the book. Yeah, and, and yes, so sorry, but it's like through COVID, we've gone through a lot of challenges and especially as parents, and I would be also because I'm an educator, I would be also my son's teacher at the same time working as, as a teacher, as an instructor, but the, 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 um, the, the benefit of that was that I felt that I was connecting, I was more involved with the learning of my son, more so than usual. So even though it was a lot of demand and pressure on me trying to juggle both things, it was also very rewarding. And I think one thing that um, the good thing of the pandemic, and of course the social interaction is really important with others, but also the interaction within the family, I think it has given us time to pause and reflect and also build on that. Absolutely. I mean, when I think back to how busy we all made ourselves and how busy children are, how yeah. busy their schedules are, where, you know, they're going from school to another activity or another activity, and maybe on the weekends, they play a sport or do something where they're sort of booked solid, and there's no sort of downtime to exactly. just be together and and enjoy each other and watch watch what your child does and watch what they're interested in and just watching their pretend play or their imaginative play or their downtime is so rewarding and it can teach you so much about your child's interests and and developing passions and it's really important to have that quiet time Yes, yes, hugely important. And and the fun part of education, for me, that is is really important. Those any moment can be a teachable moment. And the fact that you're spending more time with your child now forced because the schools were closed in, in that case, but it was a good thing. And I, I like Helen with the Brookings Institution, you have the urban design and the the, the place, um, uh, learning placemaking, I think it's called. And I really appreciate that of like, connecting a place with learning and going out on basic field trips with your parents, you know, and with the family. And uh, I, I think we need more of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah, my work at the Brookings Institution right now focuses on a, a project called Playful Learning Landscapes. And this is really about, in essence, bringing education into the public realm yeah. and really and really targeting families um, living, mainly targeting families living in under-resourced and marginalized areas, right? So children who don't typically have really um, engaged, meaningful 
educational experiences and learning experiences, right? They may not have that at school, they may not have it at home or in their community. So this is about giving access to those types of experiences in a shared public space. So it could be anywhere. It could be at a park, along the sidewalk, in a laundromat, right? Like trying to meet, we use this phrase, meeting families where they are, right? So trying to really create these interactive, fun, uh, playful experiences for young children and their families, um, wherever, wherever they are, waiting at the bus stop. Yeah, um, the bus stop I thought was fascinating because that's dead time where we're bored, but yes. just having it like where you can jump around and you got a little playground and you can do educational activities. I just love that. I mean, one of the, the things as an educator I like to see is we, we know slogans from advertisements really well and that sticks in our mind. But what if we showed like, uh, I don't know, quotes by Plato or, you know, like, like a psychologist in here. So if that could go into our mind and be with us, we can be so educated, we could be so knowledgeable, but unfortunately, it's just like slogans that are not going to really help us with life that we incorporate. Right, right. Yes. And so we're trying to change some of those things. So in cities like Philadelphia and Chicago, um, we have these programs where transit systems are adopting like sort of just what you said, like taking trying to take down some of those slogans from, you know, the big box companies and replacing them with just like conversation starters or questions, right? So what we're trying to spark is these like quality child, you know, caregiver child interaction conversation that we know is so important, especially in the early years, right? To build children's language skills. And so just having that time, yeah, sitting on the bus. So, you know, what shapes do you see or how many cars do you see or what colors cars do you see? Like any yes. of these questions, you know, just to give an idea to caregivers to, you know, spark some conversation with their child. And, and Rachel, I want to tap into your experience with working with children, because, uh, of course, as parents, we know that our children are very curious. And to really build on the curiosity, and at times it's 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 kind of tough because there are these these really smart intelligent questions that I don't have the answers to that my son, four-year-old son, five-year-old son would ask me. And so how can we really foster that and develop that instead of, you know, cutting it short or, or, or taking it into a different direction that is not as productive? What can we do uh, effectively to, to, to foster creativity? Well, I mean, to go back to the point of uh, when your child asks you questions, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in our book, there's a whole chapter on inquiry and the importance of fostering and nurturing inquiry, asking yourself questions and making sure your child is asking you questions and you're asking your child questions to, to build that language um, and to build that emotional language as well, because sometimes a, a, a child will ask us about how things work. But it's also important that we turn the questions and we start to wonder, especially about um, living like people, about wonder and, and turn the questions to how do people feel and how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And and there's also that whole you know, realm of questions in the emotional intelligence world, in addition to the sort of academic and sort of cognitive intelligence that you're building with your child. And also if a child asks you a question that you can't answer, it's absolutely fine to say, I don't know, let's yeah. answer this together. Yeah. We often think that we have to 
answer all the questions and we don't know the answers to everything. And it's a, it's a good model for your child to say, there's something that I don't know. Let's, let's explore this together. And that's tough. And there's also an element of culture there because I was teaching mostly Asian students. And when I give the answer, I don't know uh, the answer to your question, I can see on their faces, there's this look of disappointment. And it's like, there goes your role model, he doesn't have the answer. But I find it's it's perfectly fine. And it's coming from an authentic place. You know what, let me look it up. I don't want to give you a wrong answer. But many, many instructors would rather give the wrong answer than admitting that they don't have the answer to that question. I think that's really important. I just know that some of the things that I hear lots of teachers say is, that's a great question. Yeah, what yeah. do you think? <laughs> to, to spark their Bouncing it back to them. <laughs> and to get them thinking like, yeah. it's also really good for you to then learn what they know and what they don't know. Mm -hmm. So yeah. like, oh, there's a, like, there's a gap in, in your knowledge here, but yet you understand this. So let's fill that gap and then build the bridge in your learning and then we'll move forward from there. Mm -hmm. So- yeah, I think it's really important. It's also flexibility, I think. It's like not, we, we often think, even as, as, as teachers and educators, between right and wrong answers. And I think we have to be a bit more flexible with that because even the wrong answer could lead us to the right path, you know, of like exploring things and going with it. And I, again, I, as you're saying, I think that's perfectly uh, valid here of, of, of diving into that. That's an interesting question. Let's Let's go deeper into it. I think that's that's wonderful. And how would the neuroscience uh, fit in, uh, Helen, with this, especially here in terms of learning, but also in terms of impulse control? Because I'm really curious is what suggestions, what tips do you have? What's the toolbox for, for um, uh, controlling that or, or dealing with it? Not controlling, but dealing with it. What would you suggest? Yeah, I mean, impulse control is a really interesting part of executive function, and it's mm -hmm. one that, you know, researchers have looked a lot at because, yes, it is a concern of a lot of <laughs> parents and, and you know, educators, like, why can't I, you know, control the touching this or grabbing this, right? And so I think what, um, you know, what we found is, like, with most things, like, through games and play, right, are ways to really build your child's executive function skills, including impulse control, right? So you think of games like, for example, Simon Says, for example, <laughs> or Red Light, Green Light, right? These like classic games where kids have to pause, right? And not do what, what you know, Simon Says, like, okay, touch your head, like they, they wanna do it right away, but they have to listen, right? They have to listen for the Simon Says part or the Red Light, Green Light. All kids wanna run like super fast, Right, but like they have to again listen to the directions, and so um, you know, research has shown through you know playing games like that um, and having children, uh, you know, sort of forcing children to again pause, think about what they're doing, inhibit their first response, that helps build their you know executive function skills. And I'm sure maybe Rachel has some other. Tips just, or just or so that reminds me of mindfulness, and we'll get to you, Rachel, of course, in a moment. But mindfulness, but I, I like the term that uh, you used, meta awareness, in uh, the communication I had, and I, I think that's even more accurate because of like being aware of your emotions, and it might be. And the the thing is with mindfulness is we accept those emotions. We don't act upon it, but we we accept them. They exist. Right? There's that kind of acknowledgement. But then what do I do with it? Do I uh, act on it or do I pause and reflect, as you're saying here, Helen? And I think that's really important, that kind of awareness, meta-awareness, as you're saying. And maybe, Rachel, you can 
you can talk a bit about that as well. Well, this whole second part of our book is basically a meta-awareness framework that mm -hmm. you can, as a parent, you can use and learn for yourself, but you can also teach it to your child. So we were always writing this book thinking, first, we're going to help the parent to understand it, to educate the parent, but then give them the tools to be able to teach this to their child. So with the mind framework, it's the same thing. So we start out with mindfulness. Um, and again, there's, it, you'll, you'll, you'll learn how to learn a little bit of mindfulness for yourself and those techniques, how to use them, and then how to do mindfulness with your child. Then the whole section on inquiry that I mentioned, and then a whole part on non-judgment, the N in the mind framework is for non-judgment. So really catching yourself and your child when there's a moment of blame, shame, criticism, <laughs> you know, which are the big sort of buckets of judgment. And then the D for decide where Helen was talking about, you know, you've, you've, you've sensed what your impulse was, you've stopped what you were doing. And now you get a moment to be more intentional, more intentional, excuse me, about what you're going to do, the next choice that you're going to make, the action that you'll take so that it's more of a responsive, intentional choice, as opposed to just a quick reaction. Yes, yes, I, I really like it. And I like how your focus is also on the parents. I think we really need to work on that. And it's not, it's not blaming. For me, it's like accountability, responsibility, and being aware of it. So for example, if my initial reaction to, let's say, my son's behavior is one of anger, to kind of ask myself, is that really necessary here? Or is that just me reacting in a way and something that I could deal with so that I can not act upon it and be a model to my son in terms of impulse control? I think uh, they're sponges, children. And so in many ways, I, again, I'm not blaming parents and I've gotten into trouble for, for making these suggestions, but I think in many ways, parents really have to be aware of their roles too and be mindful of it. Again, that, that meta-awareness and work on things that are uh, flaws and nobody's perfect. We have to keep that in mind too. And we are all trying to figure out, there's no manual for good parenting. I mean, we do have research, but still trying to apply it is, is often a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. Few, yeah, a few mm -hmm. things you said there, um, you know, really resonate in terms of, you know, Rachel said before, yes, no one is a perfect parent and there's no perfect manual to doing that. And also just, yeah, being aware, like we're just trying to bring up like think, thinking and parenting more intentionally versus more impulsively. Yes. Right? So it gets yes. back to this impulse control, not only for your child, but for yourself. Yes. Right? And just thinking that, and it's hard, it's really challenging, right? Like when you're in the heat of the moment, it's like when you need these skills most is when they're the hardest to apply, right? And so, right, you're at the supermarket, your kid's melting down and you're like, yeah, I don't have a moment to think intentionally here. But I think in a lot of times you do, because it, you know, it only takes, you know, a few seconds, really, literally, but Completely agree. again, you know, there will be days that you are able to, you know, apply the mind framework really well. And there'll be lots of days when, it just doesn't happen and that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. And the practice makes it better. And we, we it's something that we have to do on, on a small scale and then keep building on it. And it does get easier with that, uh, that element of practice, definitely. Now, I, I, I had on my podcast, I had Dr. Ed Tronick, who had a very interesting perspective on discord and the power of discord and, and a kind of like mismatch that happens. And he claims in his book, and I do agree with him, at least to an extent, 
that um, discord is necessary and it's actually good for us if we can repair it so that that disagreement that we have with uh, our, our partner or with our children is a part of growth. And that is important not to evade it, but to actually try to deal with it and uh, let that also exist, not to try to suppress that. Um, what are your views on that? Maybe Rachel, we'll start with you. Oh, I mean, I agree with you. I think, <laughs> I mean, I just keep thinking like, within everything there's everything so like yeah. in a in every relationship there's going to be sort of the good times and the bad times mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. learn from everything mm -hmm. um and it's more the question of how do you handle the discord what is you know mm -hmm. how do you handle yourself what is your understanding of the discord and why it happened and and what would what would you like to do with it is really more of a... It comes down to boundaries too, like because if our boundaries are set too rigidly, there is no communication, and we have to be able to push it in their favor, in their direction too, to to listen, to re-listen non-judgmentally, as you were mentioning earlier. That's really important. I also think you know back to Helen's points with executive function. It's it's an impulse control and all of these things that might create discord. It's really important to understand the development of them because sometimes we yes. might be asking too much from our child and too much from ourselves. Yes. It's really important to sort of back up and just understand the progression of the development of executive function, the progression of impulse control. You're, it's something that you're working on your entire life and you're certainly not born with this skill. Mm -hmm. And it's also a skill that, that you can keep nurturing and learning from. So even if you don't think you have it, you can always get better at this. It's just something you can practice your whole life and, and get better and better. So that's really important to remember. Yes, I completely agree. Helen, what do you think? I want to know your views on that as well. Such an important but, point. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree that like this whole field of or term executive function that we use, um, I think is sometimes not really well understood and for good reason, right? Because it's complicated. It involves many different skills, um, you know, self-control, cognitive flexibility, working memory, but yet these skills are so critical for young children to develop at an early age, but they are teachable, they are malleable, right? And so in, in some of the ways we talk about in the book of, um, of supporting them and developing them are through planning and reflecting. Right, so helping children plan, and there's this, you may be familiar with it, with it it's called um, tools of the mind. It's sort of a sort of a preschool or kindergarten um, approach, and they do something there and in other classrooms too called play plans, right? So this is like just having a child start at the beginning of their day, sort of map out what they want to do, right? It's not, and you can change it, it's not like set in stone, but it just helps them think really intentionally, like first, I'm going to go to the block area and I'm going to play with Susie and we're going to build a tower and then I'm going to go to the sand area, right? It just helps them think through their day. And then also we talk about reflecting, right? A lot of parents may not think about this, but after an experience, sort of talking about it with your child and how, how did it go? Maybe something mm -hmm. went wrong, mm -hmm. okay? Why did it go wrong? Maybe what could we do next time to avoid that? Mm -hmm. Things like that. So I know, you know, for Rachel, she's used these strategies a lot in her classroom and also with families that she's worked with. And so these are things that we talk about in the book to help build children's executive function skills. 
And I think it's hugely important to the difference between the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And a lot of us are kind of trapped in that fixed mindset. I'm not good at this. And then you give up. It's like, I'm not good at sports and so on. But I think it's really important to, to and research has shown, if you just change your attitude and you have a growth mindset or you practice one, you will be able to succeed much more than if you, if you have just that, that fixed mentality. And the other thing is that focus on grades where you, and I've seen it with my students, where they're so obsessed with their grades and they didn't get the A plus and they're devastated, some of them. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's really like, that's just, something that we agree upon, but it's really, and that comes as an, from an educator, is really not that important. And, and uh, I, I think it's, it's what's really important when I see with my students, the student who tried so hard and barely passed it was to me worth much more than the intelligent child for whom it was, it was much easier to get that good grade. And so I, I think that's something, again, for me, it's that, that shift between fixed mindset and growth mindset. And uh, Rachel, from your experience, what, what would you think? Well, I think I absolutely a growth mindset is definitely helpful. It's also important to know it's, it, it, that is also nurtured. You know, we don't just mm -hmm. wake up in the morning yeah. and say, okay, I'm going to flip the switch. I'm no longer a fixed mindset. I'm in my growth mindset now. It's just- But the awareness is important though. I mean, a lot of people just- go on autopilot and function that way. And it's like that pause and effect meta awareness. And let's, let's just stop for a moment. You just showing fixed mindset. Let's switch slightly into the other realm. See how it feels. Absolutely. And how yeah. do we nurture what that looks like? And how do we help a child to move into a growth mindset without helping, without shaming them that they maybe before had where, where we sense that they were maybe a little bit more fixed in their mindset. It's really just a matter of how we frame the language and how we ask the questions to a child and how we model what that, that shift can look like, sort of that gentle way of saying, well, it seems that you know there was this one idea that you had are there any others or can we, how can, you know, what if we do this and sort of give an example of something, something to sort of gently pull them away from that fixed idea into a growth mindset and then let them try it out and see that, oh, from another idea, maybe I had a success or maybe you had a failure from that, but you're going to then keep trying and keep trying so that you have a live for a child. They learn the most from an experience. So just keep those experiences going where they can then see, oh, they can see a growth mindset in action. Mm -hmm. And we, we got to be aware that children are so fragile and sensitive when they're growing up. And then, so even like a, a slight comment or, or a criticism could have lasting uh, effects on them. So I think it's really important to open up communication with them and to explain things. And if, if we accidentally or unintentionally, again, set things that hurt them to try to fix that, that again, the mismatch and the repair. And a lot of us are not fully aware of that as parents and my, myself included, but when it does happen, I think it's really important to, to open up the, the communication pathways and, and also saying to your child, you know what, I'm sorry for what I said or how it might be construed and try to fix it. Absolutely. And um, so um, one thing also I, I, I want to um, focus on here, actually a double thing, I think 
we're often too hard on our children, as, as parents do, and it's understandable because we want the best for them. But at the same time, we also don't give them enough credit because I find the way that children have managed the pandemic is just immense. It's wonderful. It's just mind boggling. And the way they, they've dealt with these adversities, for us, it was hard, but imagine how much more it is for children. And we've experienced it as, as parents as well. And I think they deserve the credit um, for dealing with this, uh, these difficult times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, we see in a lot of challenging situations that children are very resilient in a lot mm -hmm. of cases, mm -hmm. not always, um, mm -hmm. but that also, yes, they, you know, can adapt quite well against some children, not all. Um, but, you know, it makes you think, you know, like you said, sometimes you don't give children enough credit. And so one, one area or one thing we talk about in the book is in terms of language development. And, you know, especially for young children, we may think, you know, that, you know, before kids are talking, they're not, they're not really understanding much, that it's not that important to talk to them, right? But that's one clear example where, yeah, research shows us that's completely not true, right? That kids are starting to, you know, learn language from infancy, from the time that they're born. They are listening to the sounds. They may not be able to interpret or exactly, you know, know what they mean, but they, you know, can get so much out of what you are saying, your tone of voice, your body language. There's so many things that they pick up on, um, your, your intentions, even um, when you're talking, depending on what you're looking at, they realize like what you're talking about based on your gaze. Right. So there's things like that that yes, really show us those are concrete examples of yes, we may underestimate sort of what our children understand and what they know. Um, and there, you know, there are many other examples, but yes, just to but even with infants, exactly. I mean, we uh, the hippocampus is not developed, and so they do not technically have access to memory, they don't have access to language, of course, but they still predict. They still have the ability to predict things and to connect things. And the, 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 the brain is, is amazing in that sense. And we, again, we have to keep that in mind, Helen, as you're saying, absolutely true. We, we should communicate with, our, with, our, with the infants. We, should, uh, we shouldn't underestimate them. I think that's my point I want uh, to, to get across because they are capable of much more in many cases than we think. Of course, we don't want to overburden them with, with uh, our expectations and so on. But I think, again, like, as you're saying, give them uh, credit and develop that. Give, uh, uh, develop those, those pathways. Wonderful. So emotional intelligence. Um, just here to sum up, how would you basically describe it? What is it exactly? I mean, we talked about it here, but let's let's kind of uh, here wrap up with a, a definition for you and not necessarily a, a, a technical or academic definition, but what does it mean to you personally? And um, yeah, Rachel, maybe we can get it started here with you. What would you say? What's your personal definition of emotional intelligence? Um, I'm just thinking that my personal definition, emotional intelligence and social awareness is just remembering that we need to think about our thinking mm -hmm. and we need to really take the perspective of others yes. and that we need to respect diversity of thought yeah. that 
what I believe, what I feel, what I think is not the same as the person next to me. I can't assume that. So I need to be curious and kind and compassionate and a good listener to understand someone else's experience in the world and then move forward, you know, uh, how, how, how to collaborate and to, and to, to, to be a kind person. <laughs> so that's me. But, but as a, as an educator myself, it's like, there's also a firm level and it was, you have to be, you're kind, but also firm in ways when you with children or when with students, when you guide them. So, so kind of having, having that balance of not being too soft, I think, or too nice. That is an issue that, that some people have, I find, and even teachers. And I think there has to be some, this is me and this is you, and um, let's find a common ground, but you don't have to give up yourself in order to please the other person. I think that's something that I've seen with, with some people. Yes, yes. Just, well, the, the respect that there's the diversity of thought that I Absolutely. don't have to convince some someone that my that I am correct and they don't have to convince me that they're correct, but we need to learn to live with each other, with respect with each other's ideas, absolutely. opinions, and beliefs. And so, yes, absolutely. Wonderful. What about you, Helen? What's your uh, personal definition here of emotional intelligence? Yeah, I mean, I just, I think building on a lot of what Rachel said, thinking mm -hmm. about perspective taking, you know, we talked about this earlier in our conversation. And I think in today's world, that's like more important than ever, right? Like we find ourselves with such um, conflict in the world. And, you know, if we raise our children to really think and take the perspective of others and understand others, you know, thoughts and beliefs and intentions, then maybe, or hopefully we may end up in a little bit more of a peaceful world, right? Because we have so, there's so many things going on in the world and so, so many tensions, right? But if, if, if we can raise our kids to really be, you know, have empathy and have compassion and think about other people and what their needs are and, you know, that could be same or different than our own, then I think that's what, you know, real emotional intelligence is, is really being able to, you know, put yourself in somebody else's shoes, think about what they need, what they, you know, how we can care for them and make them feel better and, um, you know, just focus on, that you know that piece of yeah collaboration and working together and um yeah and being able to really think about and put ourselves in other people's shoes and in, in the case of our book we talk about that in parents putting themselves in their children's shoes and taking their perspective but sort of broadening that to to, to, mm -hmm. to more people and changing mindsets i mean conflict is an opportunity and many see it as an attack so they go on the defensive and just kind of that openness and and that was rachel saying as well and respect and okay i respect your opinion i respect this conflict and let's 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 talk about it we don't have to agree with it with each other but let's just have a conversation let's just relax and not take things very seriously and i think that is huge important that's the adults here. So again, once we deal with that, we can really show and teach our, our children as parents, as well as uh, educators, I think. So um, yes, wonderful. So the, the book is just to recap here, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids. 
Um, and uh, we have here Dr. Helenis Hadani, um, um, author, speaker, and head of research for Center for Childhood Creativity, researcher of innovation, and consultant for various companies, including Hasbro, Apple, Leapfrog, Lego. That sounds like a lot of fun. And, uh, and uh, as well as Rachel Cass, teacher of social and emotional learning skills to parents and, ch and children. You've had more than 25 years of teaching experience. I think this is the perfect combo, the perfect combination here. And uh, thank you very much for being on Arash's World and for your book and for raising awareness on this, this very, very important issue and uh, um, emotional intelligence. I highly applaud that wonderful work. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much.